This episode is sponsored by Bloomberg Law, an all-in-one platform that provides fast access to the information law firms and legal departments need. To request a trial, go to bna.com slash Bloomberg Law. Welcome to Big Law Business. I'm Josh Block. I produce videos and podcasts for the Big Law Business website. Casey Sullivan, who writes and edits articles for the site, co-hosts this podcast with me. For this episode, Casey and I were joined by Eric Press. In 1998, Eric was named editor-in-chief of The American Lawyer, and he later served American Lawyer Media as their senior editorial officer. In 2014, he left ALM to become a law firm consultant. We recorded this episode on June 2nd. And you will hear Eric when we start, and then both Casey and I ask him questions. You'll hear both of our voices. And now to our interview with Eric Press. Law school for me was um, the inevitable next step on the academic choo-choo train. I never, I never practiced. I did a summer at a firm in Washington, it was perfectly all right, but it didn't excite my imagination in any way. I looked around my law school class and there are all these people, including my future wife, who were excited and uh, engaged in a way that I noticed I wasn't. So I thought that um, spending my life doing something I could be okay at and that did also didn't excite me hugely, wasn't a very good decision. So I had had a long uh, experience as a student journalist, uh, worked every summer for a newspaper or a magazine, and in the third year of law school, it just seemed clear to me that that's the, the direction I should take. So I did. Was the next job Newsweek? Out of uh, the ne- the, my first job out of law school was Newsday, which was then the major newspaper on Long Island, probably still is. I did four and a half years there and then went to Newsweek. And what were you covering? At, at Newsday, uh, <laughs> funny, two of us started, it was a long time ago, uh, and two of us started the same day. Uh, a friend, Rich Gallant, who became managing editor eventually, uh, started with a, uh, from a, um, What's it called? Not not the Fulbright, the other one, uh, a Marshall Scholarship. And I started fresh out of law school, and I remember standing behind some guy uh, who was reading the announcement from the editor saying, God damn, we'll never get hired. <laughs> look, at, look at these over-credentialed punks who are now, who are now being hired. So I covered local news. Um, I did a lot of general assignment work. Uh, near the end, I spent six months being assigned to the Archdiocese of Rockville Center. It was time to leave, and along came an opportunity to, to be the law writer at Newsweek, which I jumped at. So what was the law writer at Newsweek? It was mostly about public, uh, public issues, a lot of Supreme Court stuff, a lot of uh, crime and punishment, cops and robbers. I de- developed a, a huge interest in uh, criminal justice and, and prisons and spent a lot, wrote, wrote a lot of stories about that. I wrote exactly one story about the business of law uh, not long after the American Lawyer and National Law Journal started and really invented that this is a topic. Uh, I wrote a story that in retrospect was uh, uh, perhaps not generous. <laughs> slightly mocking of the whole thing. Um, and my reward was 
look what happened. So during this whole period, you don't really have a connection to law firms. You don't have a connection to the business of law other than this one. No, no. And I, and I, I did the law writing job at Newsweek for, for about nine years, and then I became an editor. I was in charge of a chunk of the back of the book. Uh, we produced about a quarter of the magazine's covers, and it was great fun. It was like being the dean of a small liberal arts college. I really enjoyed it. Um, but no, I, I had left the law, and other than my wife, who was a public interest lawyer, and a few friends from law school I'd stayed in close touch with, I had no, uh, no particular connection back to it. Uh, you know, under direct examination would admit to being a one-time member of the New York Bar, but, but otherwise uh, had, had no need to bring that up in conversation. What was the mocking piece that you wrote about the business of law? can remember I uh, I don't remember the details of it it was about the phenomenon uh, this was in the gosh when would this have been the, the early to mid 80s uh, and it was about law firms becoming uh, national institutions uh, the discovery of the eat what you kill system versus the lockstep system the arrival of uh, aggressive journalists, American Lawyer, National Law Journal, looking at this area. Um, and we, because that, this is how it was back in the news magazine business, we sent out three or four reporters to different cities to talk to the leading lawyers in each place about how things were changing, and et, et, et cetera, and from which I assembled a story that uh, must have run two pages uh, a little more back then, which was a lot, um, but also was sufficient uh, to tell our readers that this was, this phenomenon was happening. And you know, if you wanted to know in more detail, get a subscription to the American Lawyer. How does the American Lawyer job come to you, or where? Did, what was I assume it was from Newsweek to American Lawyer? Yes, it was from Newsweek to the American Lawyer. I expected to be a lifer at, at, at Newsweek, although I had hit my head on the proverbial glass ceiling. Um, one day I got a call from one of my closest friends from college who was the lawyer for Bruce Wasserstein, the investor and banker. Uh, Bruce had just bought the American lawyer from Time Warner, was pursuing a roll-up strategy, was about to buy the New York Law Journal, National Law Journal companies. Uh, was I, would I be willing to come by and meet Bruce? Bruce was um, you know, a, a famous figure at, at that point. I had never met him. Happy to come and talk to him. Um, had no expectation that it would become a, a job. Uh, uh, one thing led to another. Bruce had, uh, who was a lawyer, turned investor, turned wealthy man, uh, had some romance about journalism, had been a boy journalist, had had a summer internship in the Washington Bureau of the New York Times, as I recall, where he worked for James Reston. Uh, many of his good friends continued to be journalists. Uh, so he was a, a, a great owner, his, his in, um, and it was very seductive to be wooed by him. It was hard to leave Newsweek, but little did I anticipate that the American lawyer would outlive Newsweek. So Stephen Brill was no longer involved? No, Steve, was, uh, Steve had sold the company to Time Warner to, uh, at the point that he was starting Court TV, and then Time Warner sold uh, ALM, but for 
but, but for the Core TV properties to Bruce. And Steve went off to start Brill's content. Right. So there was no interaction with him in your role, or was there? No, no. I met Steve a few times. He's a very uh, he's a very smart and uh, uh, lively uh, and difficult character. (laughs) Did he ever comment on the editorial or anything? Did you have discussions? Uh, I got a very nice note from him after the first issue, uh, praising it, and uh, after that, hardly heard from him uh, at all. And. You know, so be it. Up until that point, you hadn't really been covering business of law. Now you're all in. Did you have to sort of bone up or what What did you do to sort of get your business of law chops? Well, what what happened was uh, I, I, Bruce hired me to run the editorial group and he hired a man named Bill Pollack from the New York Times, from the business side of the New York Times, to come and be the president of the company and run the business side. So uh, Bill and I started at roughly the same time, gosh, it was a long time ago, uh, February, March of 1998, and neither of us, you know, he, he, he was a, a Harvard guy, so lots of his classmates were lawyers, uh, but he had gone to business school, um, and so we, he knew nothing particularly about business, uh, the business of law, so we started the So Many Lawyers, So Little Time national tour, going to city after city and meeting with the heads of whatever the important law firms were in, in those cities. And uh, we, did, we did a lot of that. I inherited a very good uh, editorial team, a very good editorial team that knew a lot about business of law and I learned a lot from them. Um, my contribution to them was to, to, to help them understand that Every story did not need to be 8,000 words, and in fact, hardly any story needed to be 8,000 words. Uh, And their contribution to me was to teach me a great deal very quickly about uh, the business of law. How would you say that you saw the the coverage evolve from the time you first joined to the time that you left? We continued, uh, I think, the best traditions of the American lawyer to take seriously the the nature of um, the nature of the business we were covering. We narrowed the coverage a little bit. Uh, in, the, in, in the glory days of the American lawyer, it, while its fundamental reason for existence was to cover the law firm world, it also did a lot of other things as, as well, some of them quite well stories about the war on drugs and the crisis in, in low, uh, in, in, in indigent legal services and things of that sort. Um, we didn't have quite as much, as many resources, and so we focused like a laser on the business of law and the AMLAW 200 and its spin-offs and, and, and competitors. Uh, if Fortune is the magazine for the Fortune 500, 1,000, and people who wanted to be, we became the magazine for the AMLAW 100 and 200 and the people who represented the Fortune 500 and 1,000. Were there specific changes that you put in when you came, or was that, what was your mandate if there was one when you, when you came in? Well, the mandate, if, uh, as I recall, it's been a while, <laughs> was to try to uh, take this great uh, institution and revive it a little. Uh, it had drifted some. Uh, it did uh, it, during the sale process and, 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 and what have you. Steve's attention was much divided. 
Uh, my predecessor as, as editor-in-chief, uh, Karen Dillon, was excellent. Uh, but she too was beginning to uh, uh, think about moving on to her to her to her next job, and so my task was to refocus it, revive it, and you know push ahead uh, with it as a as a, a, a lively, interesting to read, essential uh, magazine. Uh, it it, I, it would not have been possible, but for the terrific people who were already in the newsroom who I inherited because, as we both know, uh, I didn't know very much about the business of law um, at, at, at that point. One thing that quickly became clear to me, it was, a, it was amazing, uh, was the impact the magazine continued to have, an influence it continued to have uh, in the big firm community at that point in this so many lawyers, so little time tour. Bill and I would sit as uh, sit with managing partners of distinguished firms who would tell us that we, or our predecessors, had ruined the profession by publishing the, the financials in the AMLA 100, and then we started the AMLA 200, uh, and this was just the, the, the end of the world. I, I came to refer to it as we had introduced, or our predecessors had introduced into this previously Edenic community the idea of greed hard, hard to believe uh, frankly but 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 there you have it we certainly the magazine certainly by focusing on law as a business as well as a profession did make it possible for uh, lawyers and and law firm leaders to talk openly with their partners and their clients about the the business of uh, that they were in and without any embarrassment um, it became clear to me though that it was unhealthy and for me somewhat uninteresting just to talk about the financial results uh, I mean interesting and we spent a lot of ink on it each year and now a lot of bites but fundamentally uh, a, 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 a contained story that wasn't fully worthy of everything the profession had to offer. I'm, because I came of age in the 60s and 70s, I have, um, was strongly influenced by the public service ethic of the time and felt that the, the best use of the legal profession was for it to perform as a true profession and to honor its obligations to those who could not otherwise afford their services. We decided that we needed to change the conversation and develop a, another ranking system beyond uh, simply revenues. And so inspired by the US News uh, uh, effort to flawed as it may be, to rank colleges and universities and hospitals taking a host of different categories, weighting them and blending them together, we, we came up with a, a, a ranking based on revenue, uh, pro bono activity, associate satisfaction and diversity that allowed us to rank um, law firms based on that. And our hope, and Casey and I have talked about that at, at the time, was that this would change the conversation a little. 
I was simply, one, I was tired of being told that I had ruined the profession, and two, I was tired of just talking about money uh, with, with people who either knew how good they had it but still wanted to talk about it, or people who didn't really understand how good they had it and really wanted to talk about it. Give me a break. And so by starting this uh, list, not only did we change the conversation uh, a little, but we also provoked some competition, give lawyers something to compete over, they will compete, it turns out, uh, and the easiest way and, and best way for them to improve their rankings on the so-called American Lawyers A-list was to increase uh, their pro bono hours and participation, which many firms did to their uh, everlasting credit. Last year, we had an interesting back and forth between Kim Kleeman and Bruce McEwen, where Bruce McEwen sort of questioned the value of rankings as they are now. He, he sort of admitted this is very important and this is what we do, but these things, these firms are so different that how do we rank them? How do we rank one next to the other? Did you have a thought about the sort of that notion? Of- I, have the gr- I have great respect for Bruce. Bruce is a friend of mine, but that was crap. <laughs> Uh, how do you rank them? You rank them by, by size and revenue. Uh, and then you go 1 to 200. Uh, nobody ever said they were identical. I, uh, you'd have to be badly misinformed or a provocateur to, to assume that anyone is looking at a list of firms that <laughs> you know, goes from Wachtell to Sullivan and Cromwell to Greenberg Trowick to Sidley Austin uh, to Jones Day to Manat Phelps and, and on and on and somehow say, oh, they must all be the same because they're on the list. That's not what that list is about. So the value of them is what it has always been. Is it transparency? You can tell me about, you know, it's transparency for, for lawyers and for law firms and for clients. And why are these rankings so important? Well, they're important in that they, they provide uh, to, they were important at the beginning because they ended the notion that the three of us all went to Columbia Law School. We were all on law review. We were all partners in law firms in three different cities. Therefore, we all must be making the same amount or roughly the same amount. Holy moly, it turns out, not true. Some are making lots more than others. Whether that matters or not is another, is, that's a value decision for individual lawyers to make. But it put an end to this uh, perception that similarly situated, similarly credentialed, equally smart, although each was smarter than the other, lawyer uh, was making the same, just, just wasn't true. Um, from that, what became of that, the obsession with those numbers may or may not be uh, healthy, but they do provide a window into the effectiveness of their organizations as a business or profit-generating organizations. Some have chosen to become last-dollar organizations, by which I mean they will squeeze their corporate, their, their law firm culture as hard as they can for every last dollar, no matter what. Others have chosen not to behave that way. Those are value judgments. Um, lawyers and law firms need to make them. I'd also imagine that it's really challenging to put these rankings together because lawyers can cut the numbers one way or another. We saw Denton's last year take issue with their attributed profits per partner figure because they um, they viewed it in a different way than the American lawyer did. Can you talk about those challenges and sort of how you approached um, you know, were there run-ins with uh, law firms that 
argued that you know by by this formula it's this way and by your formula it's that way and well, it's, uh, just to be clear, I'm out of it uh, and have been for uh, a, a year and a half now and no longer speak for the American lawyer and, and shouldn't. That's, that's, that's Kim Kleeman's job and um, uh, she, she doesn't need any help from me. When I was involved, uh, the, the principal issue was over the definition of equity partner. Uh, there is very little... Um, argument over whether the gross revenue figure is correct, whether the headcount number is correct, uh, whether revenue per lawyer number is correct, because that's simple math. The whole argument comes down to uh, profits per equity partner, and therefore, what is the definition of equity partner? And uh, the American lawyer's definition was, did, it, did, did the partner receive, as I recall, a K-1? Uh, was were fifty percent or more of his or her revenue uh, 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 income uh, uh, fungible or guaranteed, um, and third, as I recall, did they vote? Um, those are loopholes that any partner in the AMLA two hundred as sport uh, could evade if they chose to. Mm-hmm. Uh, some did, some didn't. Uh, every so often, the Wall Street Journal would uh, rear up and quote uh, uh, figures from Citibank about how the Citibank numbers are different than the American lawyer numbers, and the assumption was, of course, the Citibank numbers must be correct, because, Casey, who would ever lie to a banker? <laughs> <laughs> who, who in the history of American capitalism would ever lie to a banker? The, <clears throat> those numbers were not audited. Uh, the Citibank numbers were not audited. I, I, I love Citibank. I have no, I'm not casting aspersions. Uh, well, I guess I am, but I'm, I'm, <laughs> I, I, I'm not seriously casting aspersions. They, they, do, a, they do a very fine job with, with, with their numbers. But our definitions were not the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, we tried. There were some meetings back in the day between Citibank and, and Citigroup and American Lawyer to try to work out common definitions. We could never quite come uh, come to it. Um, so yes, there were there were uh, differences, but be, between their numbers and ours. But even when you look at those, look at the differences. The majority of profits per equity partner numbers were identical, uh, and then a substantial plurality were within four or five percent of each other. It, you know, did I like being lied to? No. Uh, do I remember the faces of the guys at Dewey LaBeouf who looked me in the eye and lied to me? You bet. Was I prepared to visit them in Leavenworth? Yes. Life goes on. <laughs> was there ever an effort to do additional verification under your watch, whether it would be having firms audit, offering auditing? Like, did you ever do anything to, or was there a call for it? Was there a need for it? From, from time to time, uh, firms would send us audited statements, and we appreciated that. Uh, the, but, but there was no uh, universal call for that. 
the way we would verify was the old-fashioned way, uh, temp by reporting, talking with other partners, seeing if this, what we were being told made sense. The problem for the American lawyer, and I don't think this will ever go away, is, and this is a discussion I've had many times with Bruce McCune, uh, uh, who wanted us to indicate which firms were cooperating and which firms weren't. And I can understand why, why he wanted that. The problem is that there were firms that cooperated with us then and, and presumably continue to cooperate with the American lawyer whose public position is we do not cooperate. Never, never did, never will. Okay. But my interest wasn't in whether uh, what they said to the public. My interest is, is, was in what numbers they gave us and what numbers we could then start and work from to, to attempt to verify. Your cooperation was on background. Uh, on, on background or in basements of, of abandoned garages or, 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 or wherever, uh, yes. Uh, and there were firms that, you know, the, the, yes, that, that's right. Adam, um, can you talk about the process in reporting the numbers? I mean, I would imagine that it's incredibly difficult to get a law firm partner to even speak on background about the internal finances of their business. Um, and given the resources that a legal publication would have and um, like how many calls had to be made, um, it, what kind of sourcing needed to be had in order to feel comfortable to go with something. Um, what can you give any kind of insight into that process? It would vary from uh, firm to firm and, and, and year to year. I, uh, I I don't think it's my place to describe in detail the the internal workings of my of, of my former uh, employer. Um, over the years. At many firms, it became easier. When it became clear, and this happened before I got there, when it became clear that the American lawyer was going to continue and was going to publish numbers, whether they cooperated or not, uh, quite a few firms decided it was wiser to get their story out directly rather than having to spend time calling up spouses involved in divorces, uh, unfriendly divorces who would then leak material, wow. et, et cetera. Uh, so we appreciated that, that cooperation and tried to deal with it in a responsible way. The, for all the cooperation we got, there was a limit to how you could uh, identify an accurate number of equity partners. There are some firms where not every partner knows who is an equity partner. There are all sorts of um, permutations on equity partner. Um, so it, that was the most difficult number to confirm. Um, occasionally, and we always would know that a um, merger conversation was underway, we would get a call from uh, a firm saying, we'd like to uh, re-report our numbers from last year. <laughs> uh, and usually, although not always, 
that was a result of some conversation going on where um, the firm they were wooing was looking at the actual numbers versus the numbers that were reported and the, 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 the firm in, in question, which perhaps had uh, engaged in some misleading information, wanted to correct the record going forward. There's also the controversy around uh, which is the most important statistic or, or metric, rather, when you're looking at the financial health of a firm. Is it revenue per lawyer or profits per partner? Where do you fall on that? We, we always took the position that revenue per lawyer was was imp- the most important because one, it was the most reliable, uh, very difficult to fiddle with. Um, and secondly, it was a reflection of what clients were willing to pay uh, for, for lawyers of all ranks, shapes, and sizes. Now, as firms got bigger uh, and in far more ge- lo- locations, it, uh, it was slightly undermined. You, you know, the rates for your Prague office, even at the top of the market, just for, for the most part, are not going to be the rates for your London or New York or Tokyo office. So that under uh, undervalued some of the firms. It's the performance of some of the firms that engaged in great global networking strategies. Um, uh, profits per partner is certainly the number that partners look at first. We talked before we started recording a little bit about business of law coverage, and I want to move to that. What are your thoughts on the business of law? It's rare, as we were talking about before, that a business of law story sort of breaks through. A lot of the coverage that we see is, you know, Norton Rose hires 17 lawyers from Sidley Austin, and that's the group leaving or a high profile lateral or a merger. Like those are the, that's the bread and butter of this coverage. And only when Dewey fails, does it get you know, coverage in the New York Times. Well, for a story of, of this sort to break into the New York Times or page one of the Wall Street Journal, or what have you, it has to transcend the the, the, the trade nature. Um, most people don't want to read about uh, lawyers and, and certainly don't want to read about their businesses and are mystified at the thought that somebody with you know average profits of a mere $1.45 million a year is worried about his or her future. Uh, it, that's a hard sell, uh, 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 frankly. Uh, having spent some time in what used to be known as the mainstream press, there wasn't a lot of interest uh, but occasionally on, on, on that sort of thing. So some spectacular failure or uh, active corruption like the, the, the dryer matter, uh, uh, that that's a, you know, that's a world-class scheme that people could you know, get their rocks off reading, reading about. You didn't have to be a lawyer to, 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 to be interested. The other stuff, the, the meat and potatoes of business of law, is you know falls into I think two or three buckets. One is the day-to-day scoreboard uh, n- nature of who moved where, who got this bit of business, who got fired as a general counsel, who's moved on, uh, etc. That's a moment to a small circle of, of people. Um, 
it's in, it, it, it's essential to, to, to cover it, but it's a, uh, if you pay a great deal of attention to it, it's a bit like being a member of a fantasy baseball league. Mm. Uh, the, the second uh, bucket would be the megatrends uh, coverage, which I think uh, the, the business of law outlets do a good job and could do a, 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 a better job of tracking uh, our, uh, you know, what is the real impact of, of, of technology now and in the next five years? What is the impact and uh, reality of, of market segmentation, both for law firms and for clients? What is, does it mean to practice in a in a uh, institution that has some vestiges of up or out um, heritage when the group at the top of the pyramid, the equity partners, over the last eight, nine years has not expanded at, at, at all? Those are big, profound things that are happening in this world and covering them isn't so much a daily thing as it is a, an annual thing in, in one, one way or another. The third thing, uh, the third bucket is the uh, reporting of wrongdoing uh, of, some, of, of, of one sort or, or, or another. Uh, catching, you know, malfeas malfeasance, speaking truth to power, the classic things that journalists are, 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 are supposed, to, supposed to do. And the fourth bucket, I suppose, and, 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 and this is my particular hobby horse, is to pay attention to whether the profession is living up to its stated ideals of serving the public interest, of serving the indigent, and uh, doing better at achieving its diversity goals. In the sort of business of the business of law, obviously American lawyer requires a subscription. Does the subscription model in this, in the internet age, does it make sense? A lot of the news is being reported and you'll get it, it'll be in your Twitter feed and if you didn't, don't have the subscription, you'll hear about it through your Twitter feed, through coming to Big Law Business, through going to Above the Law? No one, I don't think, is going to pay a thousand bucks a year for an all-purpose pass uh, to Law.com to learn five minutes earlier or five minutes later that 15 <laughs> bond lawyers have left Sidley Austin for Norton Rose or vice versa. It's not worth the money. Uh, what might be worth the money is access to coverage of the serious trends, access to coverage of malfeasance, uh, access to a database. Um, maybe. <laughs> I'm now a paying subscriber, uh, and it's, it's on a year-to-year -year basis. And we'll see how, whether the publications can make it worth all of our while to continue to subscribe. God, I hope so. But it's a, it's a challenge. And it's a particular challenge when uh, they have debt to pay and when they have profit targets that may or may not be realistic uh, and targets on which bonuses depend. 
and whether or not the people in charge of the enterprise and franchises care deeply about the customers and communities they're serving. I'd say that's an open question. Clearly, the, the data is really valuable. Mm -hmm. um, it's really like must-have information. You right. can't get it anywhere else. Um, you know, I would imagine that um, if you are looking to, to monetize something like that, you'd probably retrench and sort of just um, play that up. It, it, it's it's fun to uh, imagine what you were do what, what you'd be doing if you were running uh, a legal journalism company. Or, uh, or or any any journalism company for that matter, but the actual answers are are hard to do are hard to come up with, particularly when the incentive structure is so uh, askew. Um, the pe people in charge of these organizations are not being rewarded for doing great work or serving their communities better. They're being rewarded for hitting some uh, budgetary number. That's the way it is. Um, those two interests are not always uh, uh, well aligned, to put it mildly. While you were still the editor-in-chief at The American Lawyer, you saw the rise of different blogs covering this space. Did you view them as competition? Clearly, some of them were taking stories, had subscriptions, were writing stories around what you did. How did you see the rise of law blogs affecting what you were doing? Well, you know, if I, if I had a magic wand and could, could make them all go away... Uh, <laughs> uh, but of course, I, but of course, I didn't. They were they were they were competition. Sometimes uh, healthy, sometimes annoying. Um, again, most of that competition, though, was over the the news of uh, who left uh, who left where first, or the delicious uh, quotes from some lame partner on the Acela who's announcing too loudly uh, the, what, what he wants or doesn't want done before he gets back to his, before he gets back to his office. I mean, those are salted peanuts. It's very, very, very hard uh, to, to resist. Do they add to the sum of human wisdom? No. Do they help people run their institutions better or serve their clients better? No. Uh, fortunately, we're, we're, we're moving past that, um, but to where, very, very much unclear. Um, I'd love to live long enough to see what the answer to this is going to be, but it's, um, I, I'm not confident. One last sort of American lawyer, and then we can move on from that topic. But I am I'm interested in if something comes to mind as far as your time there. Is there something that you're most proud of during your period there? Well, there's a succession of things. Uh, one thing that I'm proud of was that we were uh, we were quite insistent on being fair to people. We could write difficult uh, stories that they didn't like, but we were. We tried very hard uh, to make sure that people had their say. That was Im important to me. I, I'm 
not a great fan of hit jobs. Uh, and while they're sometimes fun to read, it was not something I was uh, in, interested in, in, in promoting. Um, I took no pleasure, uh, personal pleasure, in, this, in stories that uh, brought people down. Um, journalistically, they were great fun, but you, you'd have to be pretty harsh not to understand uh, human uh, uh, sadness and weakness at the, at, at, at the heart of it. Um, the other thing that I'm proud of is the efforts we put into reminding and encouraging lawyers to live up to their professional obligations to those in need. Um, I, I take that seriously. Many, but not all, law firms and lawyers take that seriously. I think those that do should be applauded and those that don't should be poked. Almost a year and a half ago now, you started working as a consultant. Seems like a big shift from a life as a journalist. Tell us about what you're doing now, how that's going. Well, it's been, uh, it's been good fun, uh, and it's kept me busy. I was mostly worried about being bored, and I haven't been bored, uh, and, and, and I'm grateful for that. Our, our firm is called Bernero & Press, Wendy Bernero, most recently was the chief strategy officer at the Proskauer Law Firm. We have two other partners uh, now, uh, Yolanda Cartusiello, most recently the chief marketing officer at Deva Voice and Plimpton, and Jim Pagliero, who had been the head of the litigation department at Morgan Lewis, uh, and then managing partner for client uh, relations. So there are four of us, and we're doing classic strategy work. Uh, uh, Wendy does a great, uh, great deal of work with practice groups uh, and, and, and firms, identifying where they are in their market, where, what their real profitability strengths and weaknesses might be, how they can position themselves better, how they can organize themselves better. And Jim, who presided over the litigation group, as I say, at Morgan Lewis, as it tripled or quadrupled in size, the numbers are you know, baffling, uh, has been very helpful to, to our clients as well. Uh, Yolanda is a masterful person at doing business development training, almost professorial in her, in her demeanor and skill. And she's done a, a, a bunch of that. Together we've done some crisis communications uh, training and help with firms that uh, may, may or may not be in real crisis but have some communications issues and, 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 and we've helped them uh, some with that. And the favorite work that I've done has been to be retained by law firms to go and talk with their clients. Partly report card, partly um, marketplace intelligence, partly trying to understand the client's needs and plans for the future. Though I'm continually interested by what clients have to say and am no longer shocked, but occasionally surprised by the sharply increased level of candor I'm getting in these interviews now that I'm doing, that, doing this not as a, uh, a member of a publishing group, but as a private consultant. Uh, it's not quite night and day, but um, the conversations are, are, are franker and um, there's much less spin. 
Well, so I'm curious about that process. The law firm engages you to go and talk to their client about what they've done right, what they've done wrong. You go and interview them and talk to them and, and you take that all back to them, right? It's an example of law firms behaving the way great businesses in, it, in virtually every other sector of, uh, of, of, of the American economy operates. Uh, it's a way of finding out what your clients actually think of, think of you. I mean, recently we... Uh, this was a matter that, 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 that Jim was on, sent by a firm to a major financial institution that the firm had worked for for quite a few years. The firm took great pride in it, was planning on writing it off into the, off into the future, continually increasing the, the work it did for the financial institution, not, not only increasing the volume of the work, but getting more work at a higher value. So Jim sat with the client, um, uh, with the succession of people in them, at the client, who said, we like your firm very much. You're our middle market provider. Jim said, middle market provider? What do you mean by that? Oh, well, you know, what we mean is, you know, operational litigation and transactional work and, uh, but not the really important stuff. Jim probed a little bit more, uh, went back to the firm uh, with the very, uh, honest uh, news that you have a great future with this financial institution, but don't ever expect to be ousting uh, Wachtell or Skadden or SNC from the high value work that they do. That's, you sent me there thinking that that was the trajectory you were on, probably not in this lifetime. What's that worth? to know what your client actually thinks of you, I think is worth quite a lot. To know what you're doing well and what the others are doing well or better and why, I would think that would be worth quite a lot. And perhaps most important, to know what you did wrong that really annoys a client so much so that they either won't hire you again or won't expand their business with you worth a great deal. Uh, what, what are some of the most common complaints that you hear from clients when you go in there? Well, it varies a great deal. I mean, there's a certain, uh, a certain, and by, by no means, I just want to be clear, by no means is it all complaints. Quite often, there's a, a great deal of praise because for the most part, these are high quality institutions performing at, 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 at a great level of expertise. Um, it, it varies, uh, it's, uh, it boils down to frequently, uh, in one way or another, allowing a relationship to wither. We're in a highly competitive market. Hardly any client of size anymore just uses one major law firm for its transactions or its litigation or, 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 or what have you. Clients notice when a competitor is more interested or working harder or providing additional uh, added value without charging or anticipating problems in a way that you are not. Um, I would say that I can't emphasize enough that for all the talk about procurement and rate pressures, both of which are real. 
clients want to talk about relationships one way or another. Um, a lot of this continues to be a personal business. Um, not did I go to the law school or do I with this person or do we belong to the same country club? Although that occasionally that sort of stuff occasionally comes up, but they're well beyond that. These are serious business-like relationships. But people want to be courted. They want to sense that their business is important to them. They want to sense that the outside service provider really cares about what they're doing, understands the pressures they're in, knows that if you miss a budget in one quarter rather than another, it might affect the deputy general counsel's bonus, uh, knows that when he asks for something at a certain time, uh, if he, it's important to understand why he's asking for that. Does he need it for himself to be reassured, or does he need it because he's under some pressure from a higher executive? Um, clients notice when law firms work in such a way that it makes the in-house counsel look good and, and look as though he or she knows what, what, what they're doing and has selected an outside vendor of some note and, and merit. Uh, I keep uh, going back to the relationship nature of this because that's what I hear from clients. Clients are not shy about talking about what's going well and what's going badly. Um, they know that this information is going to go back to the head of the law firm who, who, who has retained Brunero and Press uh, to, to, to send them. And they want the message communicated. And then they want some action taken to make things better. Or they want people to be rewarded appropriately because their work has been good. I recently did an interview with Craig Silliman at Verizon, and he talked about his growing law department, and it almost sounded as if he wants to keep growing it, and he and he wants to bring more and more things in-house, and he wants to use law firms less and less. And one other idea that he that he talked about was law firms, you know, they constantly say, well, we want to sit at the table. We want to really know your business inside and out. And he said, I, I don't want them to know my business inside and out. They're surgeons and, and they're trying to sell themselves as a general practitioner. And I only want them when I really need them for something very specialized. What are your thoughts on that? I have two thoughts about that. Uh, this, this, I have no doubt that this general counsel is sincere uh, and that he will continue to bring more business, uh, more, more activity into his legal department unless and until Verizon hits a speed bump and the CFO says, why the hell am I spending all this money on inter in an internal legal department? Young man, 20% uh, off uh, uh, now and get your work done with outside vendors. These things work in cycles. Uh, some departments grow uh, and grow permanently and are irreversible. The great, the, the, the great work done at General Electric, establishing one of the great uh, law firms in the world in-house is the er example of that. And, and perhaps Verizon will continue that way. But for every example of Verizon, there are e equally um, compelling examples of law departments under excruciating pressure to reduce their headcount 
because they've got shareholders to, to serve. If you're Verizon's outside law firm, you should pay close attention to what Craig has to say and act accordingly. But you better, before you decide that's the way all general counsel are going to behave, you need to talk with them. Not every law firm can know Verizon's business inside and out. I wonder if the general counsel can know. Verizon is this gargantuan institution. You can't possibly know them inside and out. Great law firms that do great client, that have great client relationships, understand what slice or slices of a uh, client's business they're doing and know those particular parts of them inside and out and look for opportunities to expand uh, as, as, as necessary. And sometimes that'll work and sometimes uh, it, it, it won't. A general counsel or a CEO or a board member can have only so many consigliaries, uh, and the rest of it will be done on a transactional basis. And a healthy law firm will have a certain number of clients that it is intimately involved in, and another set of clients for whom it's um, uh, a productive relationship, but they just won't be as close um, as, as they might like. That's, that's the way of the world. In expanding that slice, as you say, um, you know, one thing that we've seen is uh, the growth of operations specialists at law firms and in-house. Um, and I guess it would be more of the um, routine litigation, you might say, that they're selling their services to sort of manage the project manage different cases. How much do you see that making um, any kind of an impact on hiring decisions of law firms, um, growing their business within in-house counsel, actually pushing the needle forward? Or how much traction is that getting right now? Are we seeing, you know, in-house counsel going from hiring uh, Skadden to a mid-tier firm just because they have that? Or um, how, how much, how important is that? Again, I think it varies from client to client and situation to, to situation. I, I think it, it's hard to generalize. This is a, a, a fractured, splintered uh, market, and any truth you want, we can find e examples of. That's, that's one. Two, I think it's fair to say that, for, that clients are less likely to turn to the high-priced elite law firms for, for ordinary litigation and other legal services than perhaps they once were. Uh, you hear this from the clients, and you hear this from the, liti from, from the litigators who were attempting to, to, to serve the clients. Oh, yes, if it's um, a, a, a vital matter, absolutely, we're going to go to brand name A, B, A, B, or C. For other matters that are more routine, we will certainly consider going elsewhere um, to places where project management skills and it, uh, matter, where certainty of budget, predictability of budget matter. Uh, occasionally, you will find an elite firm <clears throat> interested in doing that work and that has have the experience and the chops to perform it. Um, 
but they're having difficulty and will continue to commanding elite rates for ordinary work. That's harder and harder to do, I think, as a general matter. There, God knows, are exceptions to that rule, but as a general matter, that's the trend where it's, go, where it's going. You know, if it, if it reaches the board level, if it involves uh, senior executives, um, they're, they're, they're not looking for, 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 for legal budgets when, when Chase Bank, when Jamie, uh, J- Jamie Dimon was instructed to come visit Eric Holder uh, and he reached out to Raj Cohen, I think it was. My guess is, I don't know this, but my guess is the, the fabled procurement people at J.P. Morgan did not spend a lot of time Sunday night talking to Sullivan and Cromwell, asking them for the legal budget and wondering if they needed to take the Acela or was the Northeast special just fine, thank you very much. Um, Unfortunately, for the great law firms, there are only so many of those matters that, that come along. One of the things that we've been covering a lot is, is gender bias and gender equity in big law. And you know some of the stats that we know very well that about 50% of law school graduates are women and about only about 17% of big law partners are women. So something's happening from here to there. Is this changing? Is this, I know it's something you've covered a lot. It's something that you're interested in. Where, where are we with this? I, I think, look, taking a long view, a 30 or 40 year view, things have improved uh, markedly, but they've got a long way to go. Uh, law firms uh, are difficult places to work, uh, highly competitive, highly demanding serving clients who are excruciatingly uh, demanding. Those are not, that, that's not a prescription for um, retaining people who are of whatever gender, who, who are young parents. It's very, di- very difficult matter. But that's, that's too familiar of, of an excuse. Uh, Bill Henderson, the Indiana University uh, professor and all-purpose provocateur in this in, in this space, gave a talk that I listened to recently in Chicago where he argued that the, the best thing a law firm can do on diversity is make sure that associates get meaningful opportunity early. Uh, and that there's a, a tendency on the part of uh, law firm partners to give meaningful opportunity to people who resemble themselves, only, only under the only human category. Bill's argument was that uh, if you are given opportunity early and you do well at it, uh, you will develop a bit of a halo, uh, no matter what gender or ethnic group or race you come from. And that therefore, three, four, five, ten years in, uh, when you hit speed bumps uh, in in your life and career and are tempted to leave, there will be a chorus of, oh, we can't let Joe leave or Jane leave, whatever. They're really good. We have to do something to keep them. Whereas if the 
lawyers of color, young women, are not, the firms do not go out of their way to give them early opportunities. Their disappearance, their um, moving on to, to clients or the business world or leaving the profession entirely will just be regarded as, uh, as a, a normal course of, uh, of affairs, much to be hand wrung over, but nothing much more will, 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 will come of it. If, if words were actions, uh, there would, we would have made a lot more progress. If good intentions were actions, we would have made a, 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 a lot more progress. I listened recently to this discussion between a, a general counsel and an African-American partner who were arguing about diversity and um, the partner was saying, by God, insist, Madam General Counsel, paraphrasing here, insist that your outside law firms provide you with diverse teams and they will respond to that incentive. And the general counsel responded by saying, Mr. Partner, train your people better so that when I go looking for best-in-class lawyers, because I only hire best-in-class lawyers, give me a break. I only hire best-in-class lawyers. There will be a diverse team to choose from. So everyone talking right past each other at the end of the panel, polite applause, time, let's, let, let's get a cup of coffee and go home, and the problem, we can meet again next year, and the problem will be just the same. I don't know that Bill's idea is a perfect cure, um, but it's certainly worth a try as is the notion of non-equity partner status. If there's one thing that's developed over the last 20 years, it's the creation of non-equity partners in, in, in big law firms. No one outside of a law firm and a great many people inside law firms knows whether you're equity or non-equity or really cares. Um, when you're standing on the commuter train uh, station in Larchmont, no one's coming up to you and saying, oh, Larry, you're going to get equity this year? No, come on. <laughs> Who cares? It's like it's like measuring Green's hit in regulation. <laughs> Irrelevant to all but the all but the obsessed. If you're making, as law firms, if you're making a great many non-equity partners, and you're making them because they're good lawyers, but they may or may not have the ability to develop business or have not yet been given the opportunity to develop business, you have a whole category that you can choose to experiment with. Perhaps you identify some five, fifth or sixth year uh, associates uh, of uh, who, who are women or who are of color or who come from backgrounds not normally found uh, in, in, in your law firm. Uh, partnership ranks, um, you have the opportunity to elevate them from mere senior associate to non-equity partner without in any way bes uh, diluting the profit pool, besmirching the meritocracy. It would barely be noticed. 
then what you do with those newly minted people is make sh- newly minted partners is make sure that they get opportunities that they're put in front of clients that they're given opportunities to lead relationships that they're given opportunities to lead cases this requires a, a level of commitment that is not natural uh, or second nature in law firms, I, uh, and, un- and understandably so. I listened recently to a talk by a McKinsey fellow talking about the power of um, single focus. And, and he cited the example, it may or may not be apocryphal, of the fellow who runs uh, Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg, who for a period of time said, any meeting that I go to that isn't about our mobile strategy, I'm going to leave. Thank you very much. I don't minimize the other issues be, be, before you, which emoji to use for like, but I'm not interested. What I'm interested in over the next 6 or 12 or 18 months is our mobile strategy. And people said, yeah, 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 this is uh, sure. And then periodically be in a meeting and the conversation would stray from the mobile strategy. And according to the McKinsey guy, Zuckerberg would say, thank you very much. I said, I'm only interested in mobile strategy. I'm out of here. Well, son of a gun, within some period of time, Facebook had a new mobile strategy and everybody took it very seriously. By extension, if a dear old Abel Baker and Charlie, Chairman uh, Jones, uh, said, all I'm interested in, uh, in in the next three partnership classes is a is X percentage of fill-in-the-blank uh, folks who will give us a more diversity, uh, more diverse uh, new partner group, and I'm not going to listen to anything else, what might happen? I don't know. That the, the function of a law firm, of course, is not to produce, its primary function is not to produce a diverse partnership population. The function of a law firm is to serve its clients and to serve the public interest. Those two things have to come first and to serve the rule of law. But if somehow diversity moved up into that, le- into that level and people were seriously rewarded and or, and or punished based on their success in that area, perhaps there would be a difference. Perhaps. This is all very glib. There are serious pipeline problems, certainly in, in, in amongst minority, uh, attracting minority lawyers, and other things that are worthy of bigger and broader, broader discussion. But if, unless and until, um, law firm leaders and their partners focus on this issue almost monomaniacally, I don't see huge progress uh, being made. What have you learned coming from your uh, position as a journalist at the top of the American lawyer, um, covering the business of law to being inside, talking with the clients directly? Are there any misperceptions from the media um, covering from the outside that you have sort of learned about or things that you've learned that you didn't previously uh, know before? Uh, Well, among the things I've learned, Um, One was a confirmation of just how human these institutions are. 
Uh, I mean, I, all, I, I listen to enough folks shouting at me over the phone with, in, in, in fury after we, we ran one unfavorable story or another to know that if you, you know, if you, if, if you nick a, a, a law firm, the partners will, 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 will bleed. Uh, but, but more than that, these are institutions that are full of smart and accomplished people who are struggling often with uh, how best to organize themselves to maximize both their professional and um, business work. So that, that's one thing I've learned. A second thing I've learned is that frequently what appears from the outside and what appears from the inside uh, can be rather different. That from the inside there are layer upon layer of, uh, of facts and concerns uh, that the firm, the firms sometimes, for reasons of their own or through negligence, are unwilling or or won't share with 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 journalists. Sometimes for understandable reasons, sometimes for mystifying uh, reasons. Uh, it's it's often more complicated than uh, th than it appears. So that was our Eric Press episode. We hope you enjoyed it. We want to thank him for joining us. You can follow him on Twitter at Eric Press. That's Eric with an A. For more from us, check out our website, biglawbusiness.com. While you're there, you can sign up for our daily newsletter. You can also give us feedback on the podcast there or write to us. Our email address is biglawbusiness at bna.com. Follow Big Law Business on Twitter at biglawbiz. Follow Casey on Twitter at Casey underscore Big Law. Follow me on Twitter at Josh Block NYC. Big Law Business is a production of Bloomberg BNA's cross-platform businesses. The podcast is produced and edited by me, Casey and Gabe Friedman. Write for and edit the articles on our website. Blake Edwards is our correspondent. Technical and website design is handled by Philip Ramsey and his Blue Sky team. Cassie Whiteside heads up commercial strategy. If you'd like to become a sponsor of our podcast or our website, please email her at cwhiteside at bna.com. And Scott Mazarski oversees the whole big law business operation. Thank you for listening. We'll be back in a few weeks with a new episode. Subscribe on iTunes so that you don't miss it.